Welcome to Transformers, the podcast about how business people and policymakers are creating a sustainable future. I'm your host, Kai Embren. My guest today is Professor Johan Wokström. He is the director of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research and also a professor at the Institute for Earth and Environmental Science at Potsdam University. Brockström led the development of the new planetary boundaries framework for human development in the current era of rapid global change at the Stockholm Resilience Center. He is internationally known for his work on global sustainability with 25 years of experience in fields ranging from applied land and water management to global sustainability. Brockström provides scientific advice to various important organizations, such as the EU Commission, the Royal Swedish Academy of Science, the World Economic Forum, the United Nations Sustainable Development Solutions Network. He is also in the advisory board of the EAT Foundation and European Investment Bank Advisory Group. Welcome, Johan. Let us start with a look into our planet's challenge of today. Let us imagine that we clean up transportation, produce electricity in a sustainable way, transform agriculture and develop methods for making cement and steel fossil free. We still don't match the needs. We still be trapped with billions of greenhouse gases every year. The author John Doan writes in his book, Speed and Scale, we still be left with about 10 billion tons of greenhouse gases every year. How do you see the pathway for the coming eight years to 2031? Mm. Yeah, thanks, and, and great to be with you. Well, to, to begin with, um, your introduction here emphasizes something which is scientifically well established, that there is no safe landing on climate. We cannot hold the planetary boundary on climate, the 1.5 degrees Celsius limit, only by decarbonizing the energy system. Um, actually, just transgressing the other planetary boundaries, in this case, predominantly because of unsustainable food production, can, can or will in its, on its own uh, crash through the 1.5 degrees Celsius limit. So, so however we twist and turn this, the only way to have a safe landing on climate is to, to be able to be successful in transforming in an accelerated way, which scales globally on, on essentially all the planetary boundaries simultaneously. And it is actually a correct statement that even if we phase out all emission of greenhouse gases from coal, oil, and natural gas, we halt the expansion of agricultural land, but let's assume that we continue eating the the, the animal protein dominated diets that particularly the rich countries are doing and continue producing food in ways that releases nitrous oxide and, and methane, we would still remain with, with a significant residual of, of greenhouse gases. And, and it may be as much as 10 billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent because we know that today of, of the total 55 billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalents that we're emitting per year, 40 of those are carbon dioxide, but the remaining is actually methane and nitrous oxide, black carbon, 
and, and, and the other pollutants in air. So it's a, it's a really valid point that there is no, no delivery on the Paris Climate Agreement unless we can address essentially all the planetary boundaries at the same time. So, so that is, is really important. Does that mean that we are uh, kind of losing, losing the struggle? Well, I would say the answer is no, in, in the sense that we are definitely not delivering against the science on, on the phase out of greenhouse gases from fossil fuel emissions. But, but it's, it is so that we have solutions on all these fronts, that it's, it's not as if we have left uh, in a complete void how we can deal with all the other pressures on the planetary boundaries. We, we have quite a, quite a good roadmap on this. And, and nobody is suggesting, even if we, let's, let's assume that we um, succeed in, in doing what, what the planetary boundary science and what the climate science stipulates is necessary, namely to bend all the curves of global emissions, halting biodiversity loss, reducing nitrogen overloading, really getting rid of most of the uh, other greenhouse gases and air pollutants, then the charge is not to have reached zero by 2030 in eight years time. The charge is to cut emissions by half by 2030 and continue cutting by half until we reach zero by 2050. Now, so, so it's a, and that's already a massive challenge. I mean, it's an enormous challenge to, to cut global emissions by half by 2030. We have no indications of being successfully able to do so yet because we haven't even bent the curve but that's the charge. When it comes to the other parts like halting expansion of land and reducing biodiversity loss and reducing pollutants and nutrient overloading, the charge is, is actually steeper in the sense that most science indicates that we need to halt now the expansion of agriculture. So, so the pace could uh, be, be required to go even faster, but I would, I would be quite careful in, in not giving the impression that, uh, that by 2030, if we haven't fulfilled exactly the return to the safe operating space that we then crash, that's not the case. Uh, what, what I try to emphasize is that for us to have an orderly landing, to have a, a transition, which gives us you know, a possibility of having an economy that continues to develop, an equitable you know, distribution of resources and an ability to transition into the new future, the new, zero carbon sustainable future in a way that that enables us to transition in a in an orderly responsible way and, and and to do that you need to bend the curves now cut emissions by half by 2030 and continue following that path where do you see the hell and hope areas and if you look at nations or we look into the tropical rainforest amazonian region well i mean if you look at start by by hell i mean it's it's a very uh, drastic uh, label but but of course what what worries me and many most is is the 150 plus coal fire plants well advanced in planning and many of them already in construction uh, led led from china which which will lock us into uh, to coal fire burning and coal fire generating of electricity and heat for for 20 30 years into the future which of course 
is a stranded asset if we follow science, but will be an enormously difficult uh, thing to entangle, disentangle, um, in order to to really hold hold the climate uh, threshold. So we have we have a few. Um, it's particularly India, China, Indonesia, Australia, Canada, to some extent U.S., Russia, countries that that have yet not press the stop button they haven't i mean it's one thing to reduce emissions but before that you have to at least stop doing stop investing in new expansion and 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 these are countries that continue to expand the wrong climate damaging energy sourcing and and the the problem with that is double one that it has an immediate effect on the on, on climate risk but but predominantly is also that it it becomes a path dependency, it becomes a self-fulfilling negative uh, journey because once you put the billions and billions behind that infrastructure, it's very difficult to, to shut them down. So that is one hell. The second one is that we are approaching, the science shows quite clearly, we are very close, I mean, closer than what is comfortable to, to tipping points in some of the big big climate tipping element systems on planet Earth, meaning systems, big biophysical systems that we know scientifically contribute to stabilize the climate system, but push them too far, they cross tipping points and they can, they can become, um, you know, self-amplifying warming units on the planet. And, and, and what are the, the, let's say the ground zero there, or, or the, the, the real, you know, system that we, that we are deeply concerned about, they are four of them today and the number one is is the arctic and greenland here it's it's really really worrying because uh, ice melt is accelerating greenland ice melt is slowing down the gulf stream and we are seeing also that it's uh, impacting the jet stream which is a significant reason why we see the heat waves in europe right now so you're sitting in london with uh, over 40 degrees celsius uh, there is a recent scientific paper coming led from the Potsdam Institute showing that the reason for that is global warming combined with the amplification because of the splitting up of the jet stream, which is all related to the, to the exponential warming in the Arctic. Number two is the Amazon rainforest. I mean, this is the Earth's richest terrestrial ecosystem, which is home to the most biodiverse habitat we have on Earth on land but it's also a major carbon stock and a carbon sink. Science now shows that the Brazilian part of the Amazon has already tipped over from, from sink to source. It, if there's anything that can keep me awake at night, it's, it's that finding. It, it, is, it is very, very dangerous. And of course, the big fear, which many Brazilian scientists show, is that uh, push deforestation and global warming a bit further, just a bit further, and we risk crossing a tipping point, which would mean an irreversible loss of a rainforest into a savanna state because of forest fires and, and, and drought-induced, uh, you know, rapid, rapid degradation of the forest. So that's system number two. Number three is the West Antarctic ice shelf. You know, Antarctica, which we've always believed or until recently believed is much more stable than, than the Arctic, has proven to, to probably be more sensitive and the reason for that is, of course, that, that Antarctica is ice on rock, while the Arctic is basically ice on sea. So Antarctica, while being at a lower temperature level, so it doesn't melt from above, 
actually it grows from above still because you get so much snow pack still that accumulates more ice, which by the way, climate skeptics love to use that East Antarctica is actually not melting, it's growing, which is a correct statement in some parts. But West Antarctica is, is, is accelerating its, uh, its ice loss because of the lubrication of warm waters in the Southern Ocean, which, which uh, you know, melts the ice from below and, and creates a kind of a sliding scheme on the rock, between the rock and, and the ice interface. And, and this is what is causing the ice melt of the West Antarctic ice shelf. And, and finally, the fourth, uh, let's say, early, early warning catastrophe system are the tropical coral reef systems. I mean, here we have, uh, which is the only system actually of all the systems on earth where we have a scientific uncertainty range, which is very narrow, meaning that we know with almost certainty that at 1.5 degrees Celsius, we've lost them. And as you know, 50% of the richest marine system on earth, the Great Barrier Reef outside of Australia, 50% has already crossed the tipping point and is permanently dead because of the bleaching, frequent bleaching events. So tropical coral reef systems, West Antarctic ice shelf, the Amazon rainforest, and the Arctic, I would say these are the four ground zero systems approaching tipping points, coming much too close, and, and should be should be not only alarm bells, but but like you know, the, 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 they should go uh, up and down around the clock with with a red flags saying the, these are these are enough to uh, they should be signals enough for for action i mean to to really recognize that if this is happening at 1.2 degrees celsius warming you can just imagine what happens at 1.5 and you can barely conceive of what will happen at 2 degrees so so this is a very significant trajectory of science you know, 10, 15 years back, we didn't have all this evidence and we could have discussions, you know, should we really, should we really aim at two degrees and uh, is two degrees the right level and the Paris Agreement, uh, or I say the, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change has put no definition quantitative on what is really dangerous climate change. After Paris Agreement and the signing of the Paris Agreement and actually putting on paper, staying well below two and aiming for 1.5, the science now shows that is a very, very wise decision. Not only that, 1.5 is probably the planetary boundary. And we, we actually define the climate planetary boundary around 1.5, actually even a little bit below 1.5 already in 2009. At the first planetary boundary publication, we put the planetary boundary uh, at 1.3, 1.4 degrees Celsius warming. And we got quite a lot of critique, even, even from fellow scientists on that. But today, it's proven to be correct. This is now unequivocally correct, that, that the planet is more sensitive than we previously thought to high global mean temperature rise. When we go into the hope. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, yeah, exactly. You had a double, double question there. Yeah, what, what's the... What was the hope side? Well, there are a few very significant hope parts here. I mean, one of them is that um, let, let's take the let's say the 
the, the, the least hope, but still it's in the, in the positive side, which is that the European Union, which is the only economic region in the world that shows climate leadership in the world today, but it is the largest economic region in the world. So we have the big three, the US, European Union and China, and Europe is the, is the largest unit, is starting to really get climate policy uh, biting in the way that, that science has always advised it to do. So with 100 euros of, per ton of carbon dioxide of price on carbon, with the climate, uh, you know, the, the legal climate framework and, and, and the pathway designed very carefully to have 55% reductions by 2030 and reach zero by, by 2045 to 2050. I think that is one positive side because when, when this uh, rich part of the world can show that that transition not only can be delivered upon, but also that it generates, it doesn't threaten economic development. It doesn't threat, on the contrary, it helps to get better outcomes of human well-being, health and security and competitiveness. I think this is, this is one, one light in the tunnel. The second one is that we have over 100 countries of the world's 195 countries that have committed to, to net zero pathways. Now, many of those are too slow. Uh, you know, China has a, has a net zero landing point 2060. India has a net zero landing point by 2070. It should be 2050. All that is correct, but it is transformative. Uh, the problem, of course, is that we don't see a delivery against those plans yet, but it's, it, is a, it is a recognition that we have one finite carbon budget and we have to stay within it. And I think that is um, also on the positive side. The most important positive side, though, is, is the trajectory we've seen very clearly from, from the Paris signing of the Paris Agreement in 2015, that, that the private sector in the world continues to be you know, one step ahead of the political game and, and is starting to change its, its attitude to the climate challenge and to sustainability very significantly. They are kind of shedding off this um, old uh, view of, of of positioning sustainability and climate as a corporate social responsibility or only as an ESG item producing sustainability reporting like once every year as a kind of a moral or ethical obligation to instead looking at sustainability as, as a competitive component of the business model to, to see it really as if you I mean I'll give you one example the, the automotive industry in Germany I mean the the powerhouse of, um, of, of the car industry in, in, in large parts of, uh, of this part of the, of the Northern Hemisphere is, is now on a race to electrify. And, and it's going so fast, not, if I may say so, not because uh, primarily the, the CEOs in, in Audi and Volkswagen and Mercedes uh, have, have decided to now save the planet, it's because they want to save their companies. And, um, and saving their companies can only be done by transforming along the sustainability pathway, because that is the way to take the car industry in the world to the next level of modernity and the next level of competitiveness. And, and I think, to me, that is, um, that, that is very pragmatic, of course. I mean, one should be able to solve the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis only on, on intrinsic values of just having moral obligations and awareness that, that this is 
you know, something that is unacceptable that we're doing because we're at risk of handing over to our children a less livable planet than the one that you and I were born on. I mean, that should be enough, but, but it isn't enough. And it's certainly not enough if we want all businesses in the world, all countries in the world, the whole world economy to accelerate towards a sustainable future. So I'm of the view that the only way to get the majorities on board is to go ultra pragmatic and the ultra pragmatic entry point today, the light in the tunnel there is that sustainability is becoming the narrative of modernity, of prosperity, of success, of competitiveness. And, and you can have many debates around that. And of course, there are problems with that as well, because it's not obvious that that will trickle down in a, in a, in a socially fair way to the most vulnerable and particularly not to those who are, 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 are hit by, by un, unstoppable or, or irreversible climate impacts already today. But still, we need to cut those emissions by half in the next eight years. And, and I do not see any other way of doing it than, than, than looking upon that shift in the whole sustainability narrative as, as one of the positive sides of the developments we're seeing. Do you see the capture and storage of carbon as a positive side? Well, 10 years back, my answer would have been, leave it aside. It can be an area of some scientific piloting, but let, don't let that obscure the, the main job, which is phasing out coal, oil, and natural gas. There was, uh, at the time, a very you know, well-founded argument to say that, uh, particularly the US, were kind of showing a lot of enthusiasm over CCS and it was you know suspected I think on quite good grounds that the reason for that was that that could be a nice fix to be able to stay on coal and oil much longer uh, thanks to CCS. Ten years later that has changed completely. Why? Well obviously because we're running out of carbon budget. We have lost 30 years of action. I mean we could have started the phase out of coal or natural gas in 1990. Now we are in 2022. We have 400 billion tons of carbon dioxide remaining in a carbon budget that gives us a 50% chance of holding the 1.5 degrees Celsius line. We have more and more science showing that we have to hold it. That budget under current burning of fossil fuels will only take us another 10 years. So the drama is that we have no choice. Uh, CCS is, is, whether we like it or not, an absolute necessity. I mean, did you know that of the over 100, over 100 climate models that are behind the scenario analysis giving us the 400 gigatons of carbon dioxide in the remaining carbon budget, all of those models, not all, but essentially a vast majority, have already factored in a significant scaling of, of negative emissions, meaning CCS, BECS, direct air capture. So, so the only way we can, science can give the world economy 400 billion tons of carbon dioxide in remaining allowed burning of fossil fuels is that the models assume scaling up to 10, between five and 10 billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent per year of, of carbon dioxide uptake in CCS technologies in the second half of this century. So, so we have factored in 
the assumption that this will happen. And uh, I, my conclusion is that we have no choice. The drama is that we are supposed to, uh, uh, you know, absorb or, or, or take up a billion tons of carbon dioxide per year. And so far, we've only taken up millions of tons. So we are, we are a factor, you know, we're basically a factor 1000 below uh, what where we where we're supposed to be. So we have to scale this very fast. And, and the big question is how to do that. Well, it isn't so difficult. That's a bit of the frustration, actually. We have the technologies. I mean, we know how to do CCS. The, the challenge is that it's too expensive. And the question is, is it really too expensive? And my argument is, no, it's not too expensive. It, it appears to be too expensive because we're subsidizing fossil fuel burning. Fossil fuel burning is subsidized in a, in a double fashion. One is that it's allowed to damage the atmosphere without paying for it. I mean, that's damage, that, that's subsidy number one. Subsidy number two is that half of the emissions are already absorbed in the ocean and in natural ecosystems without any compensation whatsoever. So that's subsidy number two. And then actually there is a subsidy number three, which is the, the direct subsidies from, from governments around the world to, to fossil fuel infrastructure and use of the order of five to 600 billion US dollars per year. So, so if we just corrected those uh, three market failures, took away subsidies, put the right price on carbon to factor in the fact that, that the planet is, 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 is absorbing and that we're damaging at zero cost, then CCS would be competitive already today. So, so it's, a, it's, it's, it's more an issue, again, of, of political leadership. This was the first program with Professor Johan Rockström. The second one is about the eight years left to transform the future of humanity or destabilize the planet. You can listen to the programs in Transformers, the sustainability changemakers at kaiembren.org or in Spotify, Apple or Google podcasts. I'm Kai Embren. Follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn, where I will be announcing the future guests to this podcast. And you can expect about two programs a month, and each guest has a unique story of making business and society sustainable. So find out more. Visit my homepage, kaiembren.org. Thank you for listening.